there. Welcome to the Echo Podcast, where we discuss how our hearts and minds can be an echo of God's heart and mind and what that even means in this world. We are Pastor Dan Sinkhorn and Adrian Terulo from Shiloh Church of Jasper, Indiana. Pastor Dan is our head pastor and leader, and I, Adrian, am the youth leader. Each episode will consist of us talking about different topics and ideals in the Christian faith inspired from the previous Sunday sermon. We're going pulpit to podcast. We hope you find our conversation enriching, inspiring, and entertaining. In this week's episode, we'll be talking about Little James, or James the Lesser. So, Pastor Dan, Little James is uh, obviously one of the disciples, one of the 12 that was called by Jesus, and we know that he had some kind of disability. We know that from the Bible, and that's about it. Um, I did a little digging. There might be more that you know, and I'm curious to know what you know about him. But in my digging, I didn't find a whole lot other than his mom was also involved in the ministry of Jesus. She was there at the cross and and uh, various things. So I thought we'd start today by talking about that scene from The Chosen that you showed in uh, service on Sunday. And this, um, for those of you who are not there and have no idea what I'm talking about, it's a scene in The Chosen where little James um, kind of hobbles up to Jesus and, and he wrestles with many things. And this is just a beautiful, tear-jerking conversation between Jesus and little James. And I definitely needed a tissue on Sunday, that is for <laughs> sure. Um, it just really tugs on the heartstrings. Yeah. And so basically, little James comes up and he's like, he's struggling to find his words. And, and that's characteristic of little James as well from the Bible. He was kind of soft-spoken. He, he wasn't like a big leader like Simon was. You know, he was more um, sort of in the background and, and just there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he says, he says, Jesus, like, Master, you've, you've tasked us with going out to heal the sick and the lame. And... I just don't understand how someone like me who with a, with this disability can go out and heal the sick and the lame like and he's just wrestling with this this idea what does that even look like and Jesus responds with well little James do you want to be healed and he's like yes yes I do if if it's possible and he's like little James you know it's possible you've seen this happen and so he says, why, why haven't you? And Jesus says, because I trust you. And he's like, wait, what? You trust me? And he doesn't understand. He's wrestling with this. And he says, if I heal you, that would be a great story that you would be able to tell. But there are so many other people who can already tell that story. There are so many people who will be able to tell that story, hundreds, thousands, but to know that you can still praise God in spite of your difficulties, in spite of your disability, to know how to focus on what really matters so much more than the body, to show people that you can be patient with your suffering here on earth because you know that you'll spend eternity without suffering. Not everybody gets that. Mm-hmm. And that shows true strength of character. That last little verse was my own words, not Jesus's, but everything else was Jesus's pretty much. And he says, so many people need to be healed in order to believe in me because their hearts are so sick. 
And he says that doesn't apply to you. Many are healed or not healed because the Father has a plan for them that might be a mystery to them. And I think the Chosen did such a great job with this scene, with wrestling through that question of why does God allow suffering? Like, why would Jesus not heal someone who is suffering? Um, so I thought we'd just start with there, with, with that there, and I would pose that question to you. I know, I'm sure, I think I'm safe to say that every Christian has wrestled with this question of why is there suffering? Why do good things happen, or why do bad things happen to good people, and vice versa? Why are there wars and famines and, and all of these things? So I wanted to set the stage with that today. <laughs> As always, you 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 don't go easy on me. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> well, and as always, I'll start from a high altitude and descend to specifics. So from the highest altitude, and, and I don't presume to have the answer, because this is a question, as you said, that has been asked for generations, <clears throat> excuse me, even asked of Jesus and so forth. And the uh, the high altitude view is, is that we live in a fallen world. And what that means is, is that the world as we know it has been uh, poisoned with a toxic substance called sin. You know, like, like we're not breathing the purest air, we're not drinking the cleanest water. You know, in effect, the best the world has is still tainted by sin. And Eden was exponentially better than all of that. So when sin enters the equation, <clears throat> the world becomes uh, uh, toxic in some ways. And, and so the high altitude view is, is that there is corruption in our world that stems from sin and the presence of evil. And for that reason, bad things happen. Bad things happen because evil orchestrates them, like what we talked about last week in, in Israel. On the other hand, you say, well, then what about disease and sickness and, and uh, people growing old and dying? Um, when, when the world outside of, when people were moved from within Eden or the presence of God to outside Eden, and the pre outside the presence of God, in the immediate nearness to God, the entropy starts. And the world outside of Eden, so this, I'm stemming off of what we talked about last week. My Christian worldview, my biblical worldview, informs me that the world was already here, and it was already populated, and it was already functioning in a very chaotic way before God imparted a portion of heaven to the earth called Eden or the paradise and outside of Eden the world is still in a state of entropy meaning that things live and die that they burn out uh, entropy is why they say the sun will eventually burn out and and so entropy becomes the consequence of sin 
too. And humans living outside of God's presence, outside of God's covenant in Eden, are subject to entropy. And what's interesting is, is the Bible tells us that some of the earliest humans in the story of fallen man, that is sort of a biblical term, um, some of those people lived to be, you know, 900 years old. So they didn't always live the short lives that we live now. And so entropy, I guess, took a while to uh, kick in, you know. And there's some people I've heard give some really fascinating explanations for that. And it had to do with the flood. Um, because when the flood came, the natural condition of the earth changed dramatically. So uh, earth may have at one time been more like the planet Venus is now. Uh, but then after the flood, the ether or the, the cloud cover that was always there, you know, became the source of the flood that completely deluged the entire earth. And so I told you I was going to start at a high altitude. <laughs> I didn't expect a circle at a high altitude, though. So I, I'm going to get back on course here. And and uh, so that that is my explanation for the presence of evil the presence of entropy and therefore it is the explanation for disease for um the the presence of of uh, decline and decay and it's a consequence of sin and in a sense for all the scientifically minded people out there it is something that is both literal and figurative so we're talking about it from a moral standpoint that god uh god can no longer provide the unique eternal life that they had before sin because of sin and that has something to do with god's perfect nature god's holiness but it's in, it, there's a sense that when you withdraw that part of that part of God that was Eden, you also pull out like the, the, uh, the eternal life chip, <laughs> you know, like as if to say that, that after Eden is no longer touching the earth, the closest source the earth has to God's eternal light and life are God's chosen people which is why the whole story of the chosen people became significant and was the story the Bible revolves around all the way from beginning to end. Because without God's literal presence on earth, as it was in Eden, then the next best thing then is the people of God. And their interaction with God. And I'm skipping over, you know, a lot of Old Testament history here, so people forgive me. I know that God came to the temple and all that kind of stuff and the tabernacle. But my point is, is that the earth has been in this constant state of tension between evil and good and entropy and eternity. That there's this constant tension and 
the thing that holds the universe together is God. And the Bible tells us that. So we live in this tension. We live, in effect, in the middle of a suspension bridge that's being pulled by both towers from either side in order to hold up what's in the middle. And that's, that's the world that we live in right now in this fallen state. And that means that we have evil. That means that we have hurtful, mean, destructive people doing evil against one another. It means that we have barbaric hatred for certain people and people groups that doesn't make any sense. Um, but it also means that we have sickness and disease and we have um, all these things that make life end before God ever intended, but God didn't intend for it to end. So what makes the difference throughout the age of the chosen, which would be the Old Testament, and throughout the age of the new chosen, which would be the era of the church. And by the way, I say new chosen, I don't mean replacement. I, there's this thing out there called replacement theology that says that the Christian church replaced Israel, and that's why Israel is no longer important, and that's a really bad thing. Oh. So hmm. there are Christians out there who believe that Israel deserves what it's getting right now, for example because they rejected Jesus. Oh, wow. That is not biblically correct. That is absolutely doctrinally wrong. In fact, it's an evil doctrine. Love the people of Israel. The Bible commands you to. They are more related to us than any other people on the planet. So any Christian who doesn't love Israel and doesn't respect Judaism fails to understand what it means to be a Christian. Um, it isn't a blending of the two things. The Bible, you know, the New Testament spends a lot of energy and effort clarifying the fact that Gentiles don't have to become Jews to be Christian. On the other hand, Christianity was born out of Judaism. It is, in effect, the fulfillment of Judaism or the law. And there is still a plan in God's grand scheme for Israel and for the people called Jews. And we are to love Jerusalem, love Israel, love Jews, and pray for them and to welcome them as kindred. And I do. And my heart's been broken for the last couple of weeks over what's happening in Israel right now in October of 2023. But what I mean to say is, is that, the, that God used the people of Israel and Abrahamic covenant to fix or balance what was wrong in the world with his strength and power and glory and good. And so through his covenant with Abraham, Israel is God's presence on earth in the Old Testament. And the extent to which they exercise all of the best things that they can be as extensions of God's glory and love and mercy and grace and justice, then Israel was a, was a good expression. But at times they failed, and that's what the Old Testament storyline is. Then people of the New Covenant, which doesn't replace the Old Covenant but supersedes it, that is to say it builds on it and completes it, 
And that's the covenant through Jesus. So the Christian covenant puts us in an era called the church age, and that means that Christians and Jews now are to make the world a better place. And the way we do that is we find cures for the sicknesses. We solve problems of poverty and, and evil by intervening, you know. And so in a very real sense, bad things happen because sin is here, but God redeems us through his son Jesus and then empowers us to be his source of restoration, healing, and help, and love. And we can't fix everybody's problems, but the presence of Christians and Jews in the world is meant to help resolve many of the evils that are happening in the world and many of the, the issues related to entropy. Um, and so we are the light of Christ. We are God's light in the darkness that is always right there, you know? So why do bad things happen to the good people then? Why do bad things happen to the Christians? Well, it turns out that even Christians live in a fallen world, and therefore entropy gets us too. Because in our flesh, we are part of the fallen state. That is to say, we're in this condition where our flesh is subject to the environment that is the world in its fallen form, which or its its corrupt form. And what that means is, is that, you know, Christians might be able to pray away an illness or pray away the consequences of an injury or something, but sooner or later they die because everybody dies, because entropy happened. And entropy happened because of sin. So we're not excused from entropy. We're going to have to deal with it. I'm older now than I've ever been, and I'm not nearly as young, as young and handsome as I used to be. And these are the consequences of entropy. And so in that sense, Christians often complain about bad things happening to them as though they were going to be excluded from it somehow. Mm -hmm. As if to say, like, like my argument about why bad things happen to Christians or good people or whatever you want to call it is, well, what did you expect? Did you really think that your life would be that different from anybody else's? The thing that really separates you from the people of the world people outside the covenant with Christ or through Christ, you know, they, they suffer and they blame it on God. And yet a Christian is more apt to say, thank you, God, for the suffering that I can use it to further glorify you. And in other words, it's all about your attitude. You know, um, that's why I wanted to build this high altitude picture in, in my explanation. It's, it's a little bit of, a, of an exhausting thought exercise, but the point that I want you to come away with is that, that first of all, what is even bad things? You know what? I, I know too many people who are suffering way worse than I've ever suffered. And, you know, if I get a cancer diagnosis tomorrow, I'm not going to be thrilled about that news. But why should I be excluded? And what right do I have to ask God to do more for me than he would for anybody else 
if it isn't for his purposes. Now, I know that God will do certain things out of love and compassion, but I also think that based, you know, thinking like you were, you gave a great sort of analogy, or not analogy, you gave a great uh, uh, summary of what happened in that scene with Jesus and little James. So looking at your summary, I think, well, you know, when I ask God to deliver me from, from suffering, I don't mean that God thinks this way, but it's, it's fair for me to say, if there's something in it for you, God, <laughs> you know, because, because if my life is directed at love and devotion to God, to Christ, then I want what I want because it serves him. You know, if he says, Dan, you're done, I need you, I want you to come home, who am I to argue with him if my life is devoted to him? Yeah. That doesn't mean I'm going to be thrilled. Like I said, if I find out that, that I'm, you know, good for about six more months and then I'm out of here, that's going to be a pretty shattering experience. And there's going to be a part of me that's going to plead with God to take it away and let me stay longer. But if you think the way, you know, I've talked about this a few times in our podcast and in church on Sundays, that the problem is, is we fail to grasp the eternal perspective. And that isn't to say that we can ever fully grasp the eternal perspective, but when you are God looking at our lives through the lens of eternal perspective, in other words, you know, God looks at us, he doesn't see people who, you know, you know, I'm 60, almost 62 years old and Six months, I'll be 62 years old, and, and, and at 62, I could say, well, I might have another 20 years or so. But that's not how God looks at me. Mm-hmm. God looks at me, and he says, you've got the rest of eternity. Yeah. It's not a question of whether you have time left. Time won't matter. You, you are you, period. Eternity is not even the right way to describe it. Because God doesn't say eternity as though it's an age, <laughs> Because by definition, it's not an age. It's simply a statement that after you leave the world of time and space, there is no time or space. And so God looks at us from that point of view, which means that when something bad happens to me, it's really just a question of whether I have more to do in this time and space, in this life, for the Lord, and how does that testify to his glory? And I don't mean to say that the Lord is a glory hog and that he wants us to never want praise or recognition for what we do, but he wants us to put ourselves in perspective. He wants us to have ourselves in the right frame of mind. And, and so many Christians, so many Christians, I meet them all the time, and, and most of us are not aware, so I don't want to be critical as though, you know, somehow I have this superior knowledge. But the truth is, a lot of Christians are really more self-centered than they realize. And they tend to look at their relationship with God as something that benefits them. And there's really nothing wrong with saying that I get a lot out of my relationship with God. I would hope so. 
Right. You know, I get a lot of comfort, peace of mind, yada, yada, yada. I get all these great things from having faith in Christ. I have hope because of the promises that I've matured of. And, you know, so it's not like there's anything wrong with getting something out of your relationship with God. But where your mind and your uh, attitudes start to do you more harm than good is when things aren't going well. And you start thinking that God owes you something. Hmm. And you know what? It doesn't make sense to think that God owes you something. I mean, really, let's, let's just look at that from a purely logical standpoint. We're, let's imagine that we are a couple of Greek philosophers in togas, you know, with <laughs> okay. weeds on our heads. Sure. Right? And, and we're saying, well, in order for God to be God, the supreme being, it would be irrational for me to think that that God would owe me anything. Right, Adrianus? <laughs> right, Daniel the Great. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, you know, in other words, if you rationalize it, you just look at it logically. For a supreme being to be the supreme being means I'm not. Right. Which means that I have no place in the supreme being's world or, or sense of being that is equal to it. And, you know, in order to put it another way, it's just, in order for God to be God, God has to be so far and away apart from me, so above me, so superior to me, and everything else that that creator has made, that there's really nothing he needs from me. And in the same sense, there's nothing he owes me. You know, God can say, look, I gave you life. I gave you the earth. I gave you everything you have. I don't owe you anything. But because I love you, I gave you my son and saved you for all eternity because I don't want you to have a few short years on earth and then just cease to exist. Mm -hmm. And you have to be willing to say, you know, God, when you put it that way, you don't really owe me anything else. You've given me all I need and more than I need. You've given me a gift I don't deserve. You've preserved me for life eternal, and I didn't do anything to deserve it, and I could say that I asked you for it, but I didn't even know what I was asking for. You gave me more than I could have asked for. You gave me more than I could comprehend. I'm never going to be able to fully grasp the extent to which you love me and what you were willing to give for me. I know this, God died on the cross in the form of Jesus Christ, paid the penalty for sin and became our sort of substitution in that sense and then came back victorious over sin and death and now lives eternally in heaven waiting for the day when he returns as the son in the flesh. And all of that was about me, but not because of me. <laughs> mm. You know, mm -hmm. it was done because God loves the people God created so much that God wants them to be his son's eternal companions. But then God paid the price that was the highest price only God could pay. Mm. 
In other words, you and I could pay about as much as we can imagine. If I gave you every dime I have, if I scrounged together everything of value I had so that by the time I paid you, I had paid you everything I could have paid you and left myself with nothing more than the shirt on my back, that would be the most I could give you, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. And God did the same thing. Nobody could match what God gave, but God gave God's highest, most precious gift in order to settle the account that sin opened. So when I look at the world that way, I think that makes me a Christian. I'd say so. And if I'm a Christian, then who am I to complain because bad things happen to me? So I, I look at it first that way because it's a statement of humility. It's a way of saying to the Lord, you don't owe me anything. And I don't want to think too highly of myself to assume that you owe me anything. But I do pray this way, Adrian. I really do. I pray this way all the time. I'll say, Lord, you don't owe me anything, but I know you love me. Hmm. And for love's sake, would you intervene? Would you do for me what I don't deserve but what I feel like I really need? And would you do it in a way that exceeds my understanding so that your will is done? I mean, that's a humble prayer. It's meant to be a humble prayer. I don't know if it is, but it's meant to be. And, you know, if I get that diagnosis tomorrow, then I might have to say that prayer to God. I most certainly will. Because I will say, Lord, I don't want to go yet. The thought of being with you for all eternity is awesome. And yet I think about what would be left in my wake. I think about the suffering that would come because I was gone too soon. Mm -hmm. There are things I'd like to settle. There are things I'd like to take care of. But you're bigger than all of that. So who am I to ask you to save me? But for love's sake... Would you save me at least until I can make my peace with you on this matter so that together we move into whatever's next closer than we've ever been, Lord? You know, will you help me settle things if I cannot be spared? You know, I mean, it's, it's a totally different relationship with God that most Christians don't have, and I'm not claiming that I've perfected it. But I know this much. I don't have a right to complain to God because bad things happen to me. I live in a fallen world, and the only reason that I'm saved from it is because someone greater than me loved me so much that he saved me by his own effort and through his own strength and through his own determination. And he saved me for love's sake. And that puts me in a position of real humility. It puts me in a position where I have no right to demand anything from God or to claim that God owes me anything. And so when I do ask God to help me through my hard times and my difficulties, it's always for love's sake and perhaps because there's something that God wants me to do or be or say or something that you know, this is part of it. Like, you know, 
Like, Lord, show me how all this goes together to fulfill some purpose and plan that you have, you know, um, and, and, you know, this is a chance to say one of those sayings that often gets credited to the Bible, but isn't in the Bible is that everything works out for a reason. Mm. That's not in the Bible. What the Bible says is that God works all things to his glory, meaning that if something bad happens to you or something in your life um, seems to be an affliction from God's enemy or whatever, put your faith in God and trust that God will turn it into something that serves God's purposes. And again, it's not because God is egocentric. It's because God is purpose centric and God's purpose is love. Like, like, you know, the Bible says God is love. And so what motivates God? What drives God? What is, what is God trying to accomplish? Love. Mm -hmm. So if God is trying to fulfill God's purpose of love and bad things happen to me and I give it to him and say, work it out for your good and your glory, he will. But that may not result in me being delivered from something that I was really hoping to be delivered from. Now, the early Christians, when they were being flogged, taken to the uh, arena to be killed by wild animals, and every, they considered it an honor. They considered it glory. You know, I, I don't think they enjoyed the pain. I don't think that they relished the idea but the martyrs of the early church saw their martyrdom as uh, an honor or a privilege. And we would, we would say, even modern Christians who claim to be really devout believers would say that those people were nuts. I don't think they were. I think we're nuts. Hmm. I think we're nuts because we've convinced ourselves that God owes us something. <laughs> God doesn't owe me anything, and he wouldn't be much of a God if he did. If, if, if it's a quid pro quo thing, it's probably not God. <laughs> I'm certain it's not God. So my answer to the question of why bad things happen to Christians and good people and that sort of thing is, is that bad things don't happen to Christians and good people. Bad things just happen. And the real question is, is why don't you handle it better than you do? Now, I say that. And it occurs to me that someone who's suffering might think that that's very insensitive. But what I mean is, is pain is pain. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not. Jesus cried out in pain when they drove nails through his wrists. He cried out in pain when they flailed his back to raw flesh. I mean, he cried out in pain when they put a crown of thorns on his head. I mean, there is pain. Life hurts. There's pain in childbirth. I hear it's terrible. I've had a kidney stone, and I hear it's close to that. But at the same time, I've never met a mother who, once they had that baby in their arms, thought that much about the pain anymore. Yeah. And, and so at the same time as you are suffering with pain, you're also realizing that as it's a natural part of being human. You know, the, the Lord designed pain receptors into your body to protect you. Right. So you draw back from a fire or a sharp thing or whatever, you know, and protect yourself. So pain is natural. Depression is natural. 
Uh, grief is natural. How can you love intensely and not feel grief when that ends because of death? You know, how, how can you give all you can to a, a season in your life, like a job or whatever, and then when it's passed, not grieve it? So grief is natural. Jesus grieved over Jerusalem. He grieved when he heard his friend Lazarus died. So, so it's not like we don't feel. It's that our Christian point of view invites us to feel but to have a different attitude in the way that we feel about how we feel, <laughs> how we feel, right? Mm -hmm. In other words, the difference between a Christian and, and a secular person is the Christian has a different way of feeling about their feeling, their suffering, their pain, their whatever. Dramatic pause. Well, that's because I think I just landed the plane. I think so. So we started at a high altitude, we circled for a while, and then we landed. And in some ways, we went back up to eternity, right? Yeah, yeah. Kind of. Um, yeah. I was sitting there thinking of so many different things as you were talking, and it's no secret that Jesus was perfect, right? He was this perfect person, and yet he still experienced pain mm -hmm. on a level that, well, all of us will never understand. He grieved like you said he wept he got angry for the right reasons he experienced crucifixion and sometimes I think about how willing God was to and is to do all of that for us in the time period that he chose to do all of that for us um, and you mentioned something that reminded me of that scene when Jesus goes into the temple and he's talking with it's in his hometown mm -hmm. and he's talking to his friends and family and he says, you all think that you're the chosen ones and, but you still need to repent or I can't save you. And it freaks him out and they get angry and they try to shove him off a cliff and kill him because he claims to be the son of God. Mm -hmm. And that's that paradigm shift of like, look, you're not perfect. God doesn't owe you anything. Mm -hmm. You still need to repent. Um, so I was thinking about that as well. And, you know, if Jesus suffered, which we know that he did, he fought the powers of hell. Um, he chose to come down to the earth in a time where he knew he would be crucified. Mm -hmm. So he willingly went into an extremely painful death. Mm -hmm. Why would we be exempt? What have we done? that can even hold a flame to everything that Jesus did. If he was perfect and experienced such levels of pain, why, why do we think we're special? Yeah. Well, we, we have historical records that tell us that at least two of the apostles were sentenced to crucifixion and both rejected being crucified in the same way as Jesus. So they were crucified upside down. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, we get the word excruciating from the word crucifixion. That, that's the root word for excruciation, right? Mm. Or excruciating pain, mm -hmm. meaning that it is a cunningly, diabolically designed, torturous death. And I don't know about you, but I can't stand on my head very long or just lean over to tie my shoes without getting a little dizzy. Mm 
-hmm. I can't even conceive of how horrible it would be to die upside down in that way. And yet these men willingly chose this and considered themselves unworthy of dying in a way that looked like the way their Lord and Savior died. The point is, is people back in the early days of Christianity had a whole different attitude about dying. They saw themselves from an eternal perspective and they saw suffering as a natural consequence of devotion to Christ. And it could come at the hands of other people who were evil and enemies of God, or it could come in some other form and they would say, well, I guess it's time for me to go home and be with the Lord. You know, that, that I'm, I'm sure none of them, especially the ones who suffered so severely to the end, had any, you know, joy in their heart as they were in horrible affliction. You know, that's not the point. The point is, is that their attitude remained solid. You couldn't torture it out of them. You couldn't make them repent of being followers of Jesus Christ. They went to their deaths rather than reject their faith in Christ. And there's just not that many people who go to church anymore who are really that committed. Yeah. Are we even willing to put a friendship or a relationship on the line for our relationship with God? And here these people are dying horribly mm -hmm. painful deaths. I was a gymnast growing up, and so I can relate a little bit to what mm -hmm. it feels like to being upside down. Yeah. And I'm even thinking about, you know, probably the longest handstand I ever held was maybe two minutes. Mm -hmm. And by the end of it, you stand up and you're like, oh, you know, your eyes are bloodshot. Your head has all this pressure in it. And it's like. And these are not young men, by the way. No, they're old. And, yeah. you know, the older I get, the harder it gets. And, yeah. and the more pressure you feel in your head. And I just have to, like, take a minute after doing a handstand these days. I can't imagine. They were able to see past the suffering to eternity. Yeah. And that is what I was trying to say earlier about how it's really about your attitude towards your suffering that's what separates you from the people of the flesh. And at the risk of offending a few people, but hopefully also awakening a few people, I'm going to put it this way. When that time of testing comes, if you find that you are deeply engrossed in self-pity, you might want to ask yourself if you are the Christian that you thought you were. Because that is a moment to reconsider. And I'm not going to say that God brings on you that affliction. But I will say that if that affliction comes, one of the ways that God works it for his good is by causing you to reevaluate and make a deeper connection with God so that the next time you suffer, you're more able to see through the suffering to the eternal reward. You know, um, and the thing about an eternal anything is, is that it puts time in perspective and it makes you realize that no matter how long you live, if you live to be 130 years old, a few, well, you can't say this literally, but after you've been in eternity for a while, that's going to be a distant memory. 
it won't mean a thing. How much do you remember from when you were a baby? You probably remember more than I do. But the truth is, is that was a long time ago. Right. And, and so, you know, it's like the, I think the most important gift that God gives us is this gift of eternal life, which means that it puts life in a totally different perspective. It's a paradigm shift of the most extraordinary nature because now you're measuring your life and times up against a period when you will be in no way suffering and in every way living in God's glory. And, you know, and yet there's promises yet to come. I mean, we're living in the last days and there's a lot of reasons why we need to be thinking about what God plans to do after he's judged sin and death and put it away forever. And we live in resurrected bodies and we are physically present again on earth, but in the resurrected form, which is look at Jesus after his resurrection and try to imagine what that will be like for us. So it's like, if you really believe everything the Bible says, then it shouldn't make you want to rush to your death because there's something absurd about that naturally. And yet the Apostle Paul said, well, you know, the truth is to live is, is, I see, I can't remember the exact words, but he basically says, if I live, I keep serving Christ in life. If I die, I win too. Hmm. You know, so, so as far as the Apostle Paul's concerned, it's a win-win scenario. If he lives, he gets to serve the Lord. If he dies, he gets to be with the Lord. But either way, he's happy. He's content. And that's one of the things Paul says, I have learned to be content. You know, and I think one of the worst things that Christians do to betray their lack of faith is overt expressions of discontent. I need more things. I need better things. I need more, uh, uh, you know, self-medication to make me feel better. I, we're discontented because we think that we don't have enough. And by that, we could be talking about literal you know, secular humanism and, and uh, materialism. But in, a, in another sense, it comes back to that saying, God, you know, God owes me. You know, um, man, I had an experience two years into my uh, beginning of my ministry career. So I'm, I'm in, you know, I'm 30, I don't know, maybe 36 years old. And I, uh, I was away attending school in Chicago, and I got word that a member of my congregation, this little country church that I served as a student pastor, that a member of that congregation's son died, and that they were very upset. And so when I got back, I tried to do all the things I thought a pastor should do. And the mother just ripped me up. And I didn't deserve it. But what I didn't know is that I know now that if I got the same ripping, which I have many times since, but this was the first time. And I understand I didn't deserve it, but I was there representing God. And that person needed to give God a good ripping, uh. you know. 
But I took it very personally, like, well, how, how did I let her down? What did I do wrong? And I had a lot of time to reflect on that. And that is something that happened to me like 27 years ago. And I'm still thinking about it. But now I'm thinking about it in this context of which our conversation, because what I'm thinking is, is that people can go to church all their lives and they can give faithfully in their tithes and offerings, but they can practice a religion that is so built around family traditions and community traditions and it's so inherently faithless that when something bad happens in their lives, they immediately assume that God failed. And they can't understand why they've been paying into this policy all their lives. And then when it came time to collect, it wasn't there. A lot of people think that because they behave the way their community thinks a good Christian should behave, that they will be entitled to certain benefits, including my children never get hurt. Bad things never happen to my family because I'm a good Christian. And bad things happen to you because you're not a good Christian or because you're not a Christian at all. And there's a lot of people out there that are that legalistic in their thinking. And that's why I'm so adamant about saying, you know what? God doesn't owe you anything. You need to get over that idea now. And that's because that is the first step to recognizing what he gave you that you didn't deserve. Grace is the word, and grace means unmerited favor. So if he gave you unmerited favor, then that's his way of saying you didn't deserve that either, <laughs> but I gave it to you because I wanted to. Because even though you don't deserve it, I think you're worth it. And it's all about perspective. Wow. That reminds me of how... Jesus gives little John that perspective at the end of their talk together. He says, I know you're suffering, but hold on a little bit longer because one day when you meet my father in heaven, you are going to leap like a deer. Mm -hmm. And he just cries. But I think that's something that we all need to remember. Be mindful of that eternal perspective. Your suffering will end one day. Just hang on a little bit longer. Well, you, you mentioned before we got started, I don't know how we're doing on time here, but, but you mentioned before we got started that you wanted to ask me about why I spoke about spina bifida for the first time ever yeah. in church. And, you know, first of all, I, I guess that wasn't an entirely accurate statement. I'm sure I've talked about it in the sense that I've said these, you know, my kids have spina bifida. If you're wondering why they're physically disabled, this is why. They have something called spina bifida. But I never took pulpit time. I never used, I'm very, very uh, reverent about the pulpit. I have a real reverence about how to use the pulpit. And, and I'm very reluctant to use it for self-serving reasons or political or, you know, any of that kind of stuff. But I felt like I could do it this time because 
because of that scene from The Chosen, because it felt like Jesus brought it to the forefront. Now, first of all, I don't have the same faith in a movie series or TV series that I do the Bible, right? Like the Bible is the Bible. It's the inerrant word of God. I am committed to the scriptures wholeheartedly as God's word. But God does express God's word through other means. I pray every Sunday before I preach that he will speak through me. And what I pray at the end of the sermon, as you know, is, Lord, wash away whatever didn't come from me. So the only thing that stays in their heads are your words, your meanings, your goals for them. It's the logo, so the heart and mind of God, which is a big part of what we do in this Echo podcast. So that being said, I never heard that God, I never felt like God was calling me to talk about spina bifida and my kids' condition because I never really had a context that seemed to justify it. So that's the preacher's dilemma that I faced. But the thing I did say in the sermon that is also absolutely part of the answer is, is I never wanted anybody to feel sorry for us for having children with disabilities, and I never wanted anybody to feel sorry for them because they don't feel sorry for themselves, and we don't feel sorry for ourselves. And it felt like if I used the pulpit to say things like that, that people might get the impression that I was looking for sympathy, or they might naturally try to divert attention from Christ to us because it's easier to love people who have a hard life and you can help them than it is to love Christ with all your heart, mind, and soul. Like, like that's probably not put the best way, but, but I think my point stands that, that I never felt that it was a worthy thing to draw attention to our particular circumstances. Everybody's got problems, and that's why I said, and I mean it with all my heart, besides, Laura and I consider it a privilege that God entrusted. Here's these two little souls that were going to come delivered to the world in broken bodies, and God needed somebody who would take care of them no matter what, who would dedicate their lives to the best for them, and he thought we could do it. What an honor. What an incredible gift to have been given. And that's how I look at it. And I know that's how my bride looks at it. And we, we don't feel sorry for ourselves, and they don't feel sorry for themselves. And I didn't want to bring it up in a sermon if all it did was, was generate sympathy. But when I realized that I could use it in the context of Jesus' speech to little James in The Chosen... Then it occurred to me that pointing out that we've spent the last 20, let's see, Nathan, his birthday was just, he just turned 29. You know, so we've spent the last 30 years, basically, because, you know, <laughs> I had this funny conversation with him. Not only does spina bifida have an effect on their bodies, but it has a little bit of effect on their minds, too. And as you know, because you're friends with them, they, they're somewhat less mature than their age would make you think. And I, I had to convince Nathan that he was 29 because he thought he was 28. And then I really messed with his head and told him that he was actually starting his 30th year because your birthday marks the end of a year. 
Yeah. <laughs> and then his mind was blown, you know, like, you know, I could see his smoke coming out of his ears and everything. Cause, cause it's like, so, you know, what you're saying then dad is, is I'm actually on my way to 30 right now. Cause I just got started in my 30th year. And I said, yep. <laughs> you know, so what can I say? It's a privilege. And, and so there again, I don't think that I am much of a good example of a saint. I've read too many stories and seen too many people who do it better than I could ever hope to do it. I always like to describe my faith as something that ain't pretty, but it's as real as it gets, you know, and, and I think that's more like maybe, you know, some of the apostles, we always use Peter because we've gotten so much information about him, but but Peter's a good example of how you can be as faithful to Christ as anybody ever could imagine and not doing it pretty. Mm-hmm. So if that's, if, if that's okay, if it's good enough for Peter, it's good enough for me because I don't think there's much that's pretty about the way I live my faith. But it's as real as I can make it. I mean, it's, if, as much as it depends on me. And a sense that God has this faith in me that I don't comprehend is, is also very humbling. And, and, you know, so what did their disabilities, you know, cause we're still back around that question of why bad things happen. Well, somebody could say when your kid was born with spina bifida, wasn't that a bad thing? And I, yeah, it's bad in the sense that this poor child is going to go through so much. Um, I'm a witness to it. I mean, you know, those kids have had dozens of surgeries. Some have been real life and death issues and, and, and they've dealt with discomfort and, and a, a lifestyle that is a lot more challenging than yours and mine. And they, you know, they never complain about it. And the fact that we get to help them through it and raise positive, confident children despite the disabilities, again, that's a privilege and, and it's a way of honoring God. You know, and that's how I look at it. Like, like how else can you look at it? And I think what most people find out when they're given, you know, uh, a diagnosis or they're given a, a, a completely life-disrupting set of circumstances, sudden death of a loved one or whatever, once they've moved through the pain, they got to make a choice. And chances are the choice they make can be God honoring or it can be something else. And, and I think that for the Christian, when you're faced with that choice, you're sort of like us with our kids with disabilities, you're saying, well, now I'm crippled. (laughs) Now my life is never going to be the same because I've lost something. I, you could lose a loved one suddenly, you might lose a limb suddenly, you might lose your eyesight or you, you know, who knows what. And, and the reality is, is that life's never going to be the same. But the two things you keep in mind is, is this isn't how it's always going to be. And number two, the Lord will help me with inner strength and outward signs many times that I won't recognize until later. And I'll realize that in a way, my life is richer because I had to learn to move through the difficulty with the Lord's help instead of assuming, you know, I, I, that was, 
That was one of the more profound things that I heard myself say on Sunday. Because, you know, sometimes when I preach, I hear myself too. (laughs) (laughs) Only sometimes? Well, sometimes I know what I'm going to say, and I say it for impact, but that's rare. Mm. More often than not, I say things, and then I go, hey, that was good. (laughs) That That's the truth. Yeah. Um, I used to joke that I don't do... Uh, humor in sermons on purpose because it never really works. It always seems to fall flat, but I'm funny all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's usually because I'm just being ridiculous or random or whatever, you know? And uh, same way with that. Like, like when I'm good, it's usually not when I'm planning on it. You know, it's like I didn't write some impactful statement in my sermon and say, and right here's when you go, and this is, you know, I, I don't do that. I just speak from the heart. And from the heart, I found myself saying, you know, the truth is, is my kids with disabilities have all of us at a disadvantage because they already know that they need help. They already know they're not perfect. They already know that they're not self-made. They already realize that some of the most fundamental things that they do in their lives require me and my wife to help them with it. You know, and and the person who's really handicapped is the one that's sitting out there listening to me thinking that they don't need anybody's help. You know, and, and I'm thinking of a guy we both know who's a very confident, tall, good-looking, self-made man, right? Convincing somebody like that that they need a savior, that... that that in a moment life could change forever and you find yourself unable to do anything about it. You know, I mean, nice thing about having kids with disabilities and suffering a few difficulties in life, I'm already softened up, you know? I've been beat with one of those meat tenderizing hammers enough times in my life that I'm already pretty well softened up. Yeah, and I love how you said that in the sermon. I don't know if you had planned to say that or not, but when you said they're actually at an advantage because they don't have the pride that you have, basically. Mm-hmm. They they know that they're not self-made, that they can't do it all on their own, and what a per- paradigm shift mm-hmm. for me to see that. So I'm glad that you said that. Mm-hmm. No, it was not in the notes, hmm. but... <laughs> Usually the good stuff isn't, but then the notes aren't bad. Anyway. Yeah. Were there any closing thoughts that you wanted to say for all that? Well, um, I don't know. I I think I want to, I think my last words for this are an echo of what I finished with on Sunday. I know one day, not too far in the future, I'm going to dance in heaven's halls with my handicapped daughter, Ruthie, on good legs Mm. and a tall, lean body. And I know that I'm going to run across heaven's fields one day with my son, Nathan, whose legs will be long and straight and who will wow me with his profound thoughts and observations. All of that's coming. And it's just a matter of time. Amen.